turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone, can, can, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This section of Scripture touches on a lot of relevant topics for us. It opens up a bunch of questions that we face in our own lives and in the culture around us around marriage and divorce and remarriage and a single life. Uh, some of this passage, I think, has direct application to questions about homosexuality and to questions about transgender people. And in addition to just all of the topics that can kind of come to mind as we read these 12 verses, uh, what we also know is that our woundedness in this area runs very deep. And places around our sexuality and marriage and divorce and our our shortcomings, our failures, our disappointments in these areas, those are tender places for all of us. And this passage here in Matthew 19, as I got into it this week, it's, it's, it's deep. There are many different layers to the historical context of what Jesus is talking about here with the Pharisees and with his disciples. And it was really the kind of sermon that I wish I had about a year to prepare for, but I had about four days. And um, on Friday, Luke came in and asked how it was going, and I said, I think I've got about seven sermons going right now. And um, the one in your bulletin is not the one that I'm going to preach today, so it's even changed since Friday. Um, just a lot to 
cover. So we're going to, I'm going to preach on this text both this week and next week, but I want to begin today by saying that what we're going to talk about today is is the opening of a door to a conversation about marriage and divorce and sexuality. I'm going to answer some questions, or at least guide us to some answers to some questions around these issues. Um, but there's no way that a sermon can address every circumstance, every nuance, um, every particular issue. And so I hope this week that we will we'll clear the way, um, but it might also raise as many questions as it answers. Uh, but it, it's going to be my goal to, it, it's not going to be my goal to stand up here this morning and to give you like a position paper on marriage and remarriage and divorce and homosexuality or whatever other topics this passage raises. Instead, what I want us to hear is, is the good news about these topics. I, I want us to hear the good news about these things, and I, I want to to offer a vision to us as a church for how we live out our sexuality, how we live out our maleness and our femaleness, and how we live out our married lives and our single lives together here as a community. We are, are a people who are called, we believe, to steadfast worship. And this includes the way that we express our sexuality. We are called to be a people here at Broadway who are a healing community. And part of being a healing community is being honest about how far each of us has fallen short of God's plan in these areas. And that healing is available to us through Jesus and through an invitation into His family. We're a community called to uncommon unity which means that we believe that there are a variety of callings in the church and that being married with a couple of kids is not the only way to live a faithful life of following Jesus. Marriage is not the goal. We believe that faithfulness to Jesus is the goal. And that faithfulness can be expressed in many different ways in the life of the church. We also believe that we're called to be a faithful witness if there's anything clear in the Bible about sex and marriage and the single life, is that these things were created by God to point to Him. They aren't for us. They are for Him. To reflect His image. To reflect His beauty and His creativity and His sacrificial so today, what I want to do is to look at these, uh, I'm going to walk through Matthew chapter 19 and walk through this conversation that Jesus is having with his Pharisees and with his disciples. And, and we've been looking at the, the gospel of Matthew through the lens of discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus and how do we go about doing it? And so this week, I want to kind of lay the groundwork by walking through this passage. And then next week, I want to talk about uh, the, the big biblical story about sexuality, as well as the story that our world is telling us about these things, and to talk and to offer, I hope, also a, a vision for how to live this out as a community. So, would you pray with me? Lord, we, we need your help to hear your word to each of us. Father, I pray that where there is, where there are things hidden in each one of us, places of 
of shame in these areas, Lord, that we would step out into the light and experience your grace. So I pray if there's any areas of pride in each one of us, that, Lord, you would bring your humility um, into our lives, that we would experience humbleness in order for all of us that we would experience your, your grace in our lives as we hear this word spoken today. Amen. Matthew 19.3, these Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him a question. And is, is it an honest question? No, they come to test him. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. Now, where does this question come from? Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, says this. This is, this is the, uh, the verses that the Pharisees were asking Jesus about. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and then they go on to talk about the things that can happen in this particular circumstance. Becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. Pretty vague. What does displeasing mean? And this is a question that the rabbis all males, of course, were asking during this time. What does it mean for my wife to be displeasing to me? And in what way could I then give her uh, a certificate of divorce? And there were different opinions by, by rabbis during this day. Some rabbis believed that a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. They had lists. As little as basically burning the toast was enough to be displeasing and to be ground for divorce. Others were more strict and said that Moses was strictly talking about adultery by the wife, and there were other rabbis who were somewhere in between. But the point is, this was a hot question during this day. This was unsettled among the listeners that were listening to Jesus this day. And just think a little bit about the cultural story that must have been told in order for a question to even be able to be asked like this. Can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? Who is the marriage for in this culture? The men, right? This is male-dominated, male-oriented. This is, this is like bro culture toxic masculinity among the Pharisees right now. I can just kind of imagine them joking in the temple about these things, about these questions, and about you know, what my wife did yesterday, and hey, is that enough? I don't know. And so notice how Jesus responds to this really toxic culture. He doesn't immediately answer the question about divorce. He doesn't address the particular disagreement they're having. Instead, he goes back to the beginning of the story, and he talks about the meaning and purpose and vision that God has for marriage. He starts his response with, Have you read? Now, this is to the Bible scholars of the day. Most of them had most of the Old Testament memorized. And he says, Haven't you read? 
like asking LeBron James, haven't you shot a basketball? Haven't you read the very first page of the Bible? Genesis 1 and 2. He goes back to the basics and he retells the story of what marriage was about to begin with. And it has nothing to do with whether the woman is pleasing to her husband. Marriage between male and female was a part of God's plan for the beginning. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they, the two will become one flesh. In this response, Jesus takes two quotations from Genesis, one from chapter 1 and one from chapter 2, and he smashes it together in order to communicate what marriage was all about to begin with. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 26 through 28. Genesis chapter 1. God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Genesis tells us that human beings, male and female, are made in the Creator's You and I, every single person, male and female, reflect the image of God in the world. And what Genesis tells us is that these two, when these two different expressions of God's image, when they come together, they make more humans. They make more images of God. They are fruitful and they multiply. I hope I'm not telling anyone anything they don't know already. And it's important to note this because in, in the last 60 years, the idea that, that sex and making babies go together has become optional. And those two things in Scripture have always been understood to go together as a potential and a possibility. So Jesus takes us to the beginning of the story of God's creation, and he said, God made human beings in his image. He made them male and female to different expressions of his image. And when those two images come together, they make more images of God. And so in response to the Pharisees' debate about what is and what is not a lawful reason for divorce, he tells them that they need to back the truck up and ask the prior question, what is marriage for to begin with? And it is not for the pleasure of the man. It was in the beginning a way that human beings pointed beyond themselves and reflected the image of God in a unique way by coming together as male and female so that more images of God were created through that union. Turn the page to Genesis chapter 2, the second half of Jesus' quotation. Genesis chapter 2, starting at the second half of verse 20. For Adam, no suitable helper was found, and so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. 
Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Marriage is a union of male and female. These two different reflections of the image of God, when they come together in marriage, when they are are united in sex, there is a spiritual union that takes place, a binding up of two people, a one flesh union together. And Genesis 2 says that this is the context then. This union then is the context of a new family. A husband leaves his family, he joins with his wife, and a new family is created where this uh, making and raising of new image bearers, these new little humans, it's, it's an environment where that can take place. There's a leaving of one family and joining yourself to another that happens in marriage that is for the purpose of companionship, no suitable helper was found. But it's also for creating this environment where these new little images of God can be raised. Now, I I may have lost some of you in all of that, but let me just give you a summary. Jesus starts his response to the Pharisees by saying, Have you not read? Because he is saying to them, if they would read the first pages of the Bible, they would hear God's vision for marriage, which is this one flesh union that brings about new images of God into the world. And so the question, can a husband divorce his wife for any and every reason, is a ridiculous question in light of what God's design and plan and purpose was in the very beginning of the Bible. In the first pages of the Bible, we are told that marriage has a divine purpose to reflect the image of of God in the world by male and female coming together and by coming together new images of God being brought into the world. So Jesus doesn't jump jump into their debate because they're asking the wrong question. Marriage isn't about them, it's about God. It has a divine purpose. And so if we only think about marriage based on our, our own needs and wants and desires, if we're only asking questions about our horizontal relationships, then we're asking the wrong questions, at least the wrong questions first. Jesus takes us to the beginning, and he points us vertically to God's design and purpose for people, and his design and purpose for marriage. Back to Matthew chapter 19, verses 7 through 10. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus, you haven't answered our question. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. And back to that passage in Deuteronomy 24, uh, God never commands husbands to give their wives a certificate of divorce. He just simply says that it's something that might happen. I had to look that up this week. I wasn't sure if he did or not. But Jesus knew. This was nothing that God ever commanded. 
God's perfect vision and plan and design for marriage is broken whenever a divorce happens. Now, I want to pause here and and just directly address the issue of divorce and and remarriage. I want to say again, I I realize that this is a tender place for a lot of you. And I hope today to bring a good word to you. In the Gospels, there are four different places where Jesus talks about divorce. One other time in the Gospel of Matthew, once in Mark, and once in Luke. And three times, other than this passage, which is the fourth, three times Jesus says, anyone who gets a divorce and gets remarried contributes to adultery in some way. And those three times, there's no qualification. Here in Matthew, Jesus does give one qualification. If anyone divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marry another woman, they commit adultery. Those are Jesus' four statements on divorce in the Gospels. And there's one more in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, another statement about divorce. Turn with me there, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there is another allowance for divorce in scriptures, in the scripture. Paul says this, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, which is interesting in and of itself, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman, if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. So, a believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So, I offer those to you as what the Bible explicitly says as two legitimate reasons for divorce and then implied in that the possibility of remarriage for a believer. And then underneath and above and all around these, these two passages that talk explicitly about divorce, we have the message of the gospel in the New Testament. And that message is that through repentance and confession, that new life is available through a relationship with Jesus. That is underneath and all around and over these passages that both Jesus and Paul talk about regarding divorce. So today, rather than creating a list of possible options, I want to give a few principles for us to remember regarding divorce and marriage. First, Divorce is an occasion for humility, repentance, forgiveness, and grace. Divorce is an occasion for humility, repentance, forgiveness, and grace. I had a friend uh, where I uh, used to live. His name was Nick. And uh, Nick and his wife had five children. And one day his wife came to him and told him that she was pregnant, and this one wasn't his. 
She'd been having an affair, and she wanted out of the marriage. She wanted to marry a guy from the college group at their church, but she'd been sleeping with. Now, if anyone that I've ever met had a biblically justified reason for divorce, it was my friend. He could have pointed to Matthew chapter 19, washed his hands with the marriage, and moved on. And while she did move forward and they did get a divorce, my friend took the next couple of years to make this divorce an occasion for repentance and humility and forgiveness and grace. He moved into deeper relationship with his church community. He moved into community with people. He deeply examined himself and his own actions. He began to confess freely to people about his many shortcomings, shortcomings, not only in his marriage, but also in his other life as well. He allowed God to do a deep work in his soul through this process. Nick engaged God in this process. He invited God into that wounded place. He didn't make excuses for himself. He worked to forgive. And he didn't even allow a passage like Matthew chapter 19 to let him off the hook of doing that work that God wanted to do in his soul. His divorce was an occasion for humility, repentance, and grace. A point in this story is that we often want to make a list of rules to govern our lives. And we use them to defend ourselves. Or if we can't get around our rules, we get defensive and we make excuses. But here, my friend Ned, even when he had a rule, Matthew chapter 19, to allow him to wash his hands of that marriage, he engaged God in that deepest place of his own heart and Divorce is an occasion for humility, repentance, forgiveness, and grace. Secondly, remember that divorce is never God's ideal plan and the goal. It is one example, one example of falling short of the glory of God. It is a failure to live up to the high calling and vision of marriage that God has for us. Third, remember that divorce is not a clean slate. Instead, it's a wound that needs tending to. Divorce is not a clean slate. It is a wound that needs to be tended to. There is a subtle suggestion by the world that once those papers are signed, that we walk away and we never really have to worry or care about that person or about that season in our past. But any of us who have known anyone who's been through a divorce know that that is a lie. The divorce is a wound in a person's life, and it's a wound in the lives of the relationships that are touched by that divorce. Certainly the children that may be involved, but also the friends and family that are affected as well. Divorce is not a clean slate. It is a wound that needs to be tended to. Remember that this wound can be healed by Jesus. If you've gone through a divorce and as a follower of Jesus, if you haven't already done this, you need to tend to that wound by examining yourself, by asking what part you played in the failure of that marriage, by asking whether you've forgiven your spouse, 
to ask what other relationships were harmed and what work needs to be done and bringing healing there. And it's through this intentional process of humility and repentance and forgiveness where we can experience healing through Jesus and the new life that is offered to us. I want to say to you that if you believe that the divorce was finished when the papers were signed and you can wash your hands, you are going to carry that unhealed wound into all sorts of other relationships in your life. Sin always involves a break in a relationship. And divorce is not an unforgivable sin, but it is a sin that wounds more deeply and usually more widely than others. It wounds more deeply in your own life because it's a relationship where two souls were bound up and intertwined together. You were reunited with the person that relationship is broken. There are deep wounds. And marriage that also creates, again, this web of relationships that also are broken when a divorce happens. And so that wound can be tended to, and it can be healed by Jesus, but it can't be done simply by signing papers. There is work that needs to be engaged with God to bring about the healing that He wants for you in your life through your divorce. The fourth principle I want to say is that remarriage, hold on a second, I'm going to say the first thing that everybody's going to talk Remarriage is not an option if you simply wipe your hands with the thing you have done. But because of the gospel, remarriage is an option for a believer who has allowed Jesus to tend to those wounds and experience the healing that he wants to do. I think that's the message of the gospel. All right, Matthew 19, verses 11 through 12. Jesus, so the disciples ask him, if this is a situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry, and Jesus basically says, yes, that's true. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Jesus responds here in a way that was shocking to the people of his day. It's shocking to us, I think, in our traditional evangelical churches and the way that we view marriage and the way that we organize our churches around marriage. And we've really ignored these two verses pretty much completely when it comes to the way we think about life in the church. Jesus, is, if what you are saying about marriage and divorce is true, then it's better not to marry at all. And Jesus looks at them and says, you're right. You're more right than you even know. Now, let me really quickly fill you in on this eunuch stuff, because um, you know, we don't really know what this is all about. So just real quickly, uh, becoming a eunuch was a very common in Jesus' day. And what usually happened is that a king or some other rich or wealthy person, they would have servants in their home. And servants in their home, they didn't just like, um, they didn't just live someplace else and have this nine to five job where they'd, you know, come to work and work from nine to five and then go home. They lived, they were a part of the household. And so they were very close to the family. And so to ensure that there weren't any sexual temptations or problems, these male servants in the home would be castrated so that there wouldn't be any question about anything they may be doing with 
the, the wife of the house or, or the daughters of the house or anyone else in the house. It's a very strange practice for us, but it was very, very common at this time. But basically, Jesus uses this idea of a eunuch as a metaphor for a group of people who will never have sex and never reproduce children. And Jesus uses this metaphor of being a eunuch to describe a way of life that some people in the kingdom of God are called to. There's a way that is a choice that some people will make to deny themselves of sex and the companionship that marriage offers for the sake of the kingdom of God. And here Jesus says twice, anyone who can accept it should accept it. He seems to think it's a pretty good thing. Which says to me that the single celibate life should probably be more common in our churches today than it is. We do have a few examples here in our church of, of those who have committed to this kind of life, even for, either for a season or for a lifetime. But for a really long time, in the evangelical church, we have placed marriage as a goal for people. We've told people that the only place where they can find intimacy and have their relational needs met is in the context of marriage and children. And we have not created the kind of environment as a church, uh, a kind of community where life together happens in such a way that makes single celibate life a viable, appealing option for people. But Jesus here says that anyone who should accept it should accept it. It's a good thing. The Apostle Paul says a very similar thing in 1 Corinthians as well. And of course, Jesus is describing his own life choice. He was an unmarried man who remained celibate for the whole of his life for the sake of the kingdom of God, and he was the most satisfied, most fulfilled human being that has ever lived. And he was not lacking in any way because he wasn't married. Jesus and his teaching brings dignity and honor to the single life in a way that no other religious teacher up to this point in history had ever done. This was a brand new idea. No religious teacher, especially in Judaism, had ever considered the single life as something to be honored at all. Quite the opposite. And so in short, in short Jesus is saying here, you don't have to have sex to have a meaningful, pleasure-filled, full life. And that was a radical idea in Jesus' day, and goodness if it isn't a radical idea today. So while the Pharisees are looking for loopholes so they can better figure out how to make marriage more about them, Jesus points us to the Creator. And he looks around and he sees two groups of people, those who are married and those who are single. And he says to them, and he says to us, both of these ways of life are gifts, if we are willing to receive them as gifts. They are both callings, vocations to be lived out under the reality of the kingdom of God. Marriage is a symbol that points beyond itself to God and that then has the potential in its union to produce even more human beings made in God's image. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We hear Paul's longest teaching on marriage. Ephesians chapter 5. And listen to the ways that Paul sees marriage not as something that is for the purpose of fulfilling the desires and wants of individual people, 
but for the way that marriage was designed in order to reflect Jesus and his relationship with the church. Ephesians 5, I'm going to start reading to verse 21 and go all the way down through verse 32. Paul says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does for his body, the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Your marriage in your life together, the way that as husband and wife we're called to sacrifice our own lives, the way that we die for the sake of another is meant to be a witness to the world of what Christ did for the church. Marriage is a symbol of the relationship of Jesus and the church. And Jesus also then says this other radical thing, and Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 7, about the single life. Jesus and Paul give a vision for the single life that we need to recover today, that your life as a single person, whether for a season or for your whole life, is also a reflection of Christ. It is a witness to the world of a life lived in wholehearted devotion to God. And friends, both of these ways of life come with their own particular joys and their own particular burdens and sorrows. Marriage is not a one-way ticket to happiness and the fulfillment of all of our desires into decades of blissful guilt-free sex. Right? The verdict is out, (laughs) y'all. Marriage doesn't fulfill all of those things. And we've made marriage into an idol in the church and have placed on it expectations that only God can fill. Marriage needs to be seen as a decision not to the fulfillment of our desires of our flesh, but as a decision to crucify our flesh for the sake of another person. Let's wonder how many people would be so quick to say yes to marriage if they understood that's what marriage really is. A daily crucifying of our flesh for the sake of another person. Which, of course, in the area of sexuality means saying no to any sex outside of that relationship. But it's also the daily dying to self. The hard work and commitment of asking every single day how my life can be offered for my wife. What chore do I need to do today that will give her space to breathe? 
What sacrifice do I need to do today, this week, this year to create space for her in her life to flourish and to grow? And she asked the same kind of question of herself, for me. Married life is really hard. And when it's not going well, there is no pain like the pain and loneliness and rejection that happens inside of a marriage that is hurting and broken. Marriage comes with, with daily burdens and trials. In married life, both partners are choosing to die to themselves every day. And when they do that, God does this amazing thing of bringing joy and life to that home. But it's really, really hard. The life of a single person comes with its own joys and its own unique burdens to carry. There is freedom in the life of a single person. There is openness to not have the worries that I just described. The worries and needs of another person uh, are not on our minds in quite the same way that they are in a marriage. But there is a daily dying to ourselves in the single life as well. Of course, the sexual desire and a commitment to celibacy. There's also the reality of loneliness, feelings of isolation. But there is an openness and an availability to a relationship with God that is not available to the married person. There's a wonderful passage in the book of Isaiah that talks about eunuchs in the kingdom of God. That is, those who will renounce marriage and uh, renounce sex and not reproduce children. He says this, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Isaiah doesn't tell us what the name is. A single person, like all of us, has the name son and daughter, but they also have a new name, a new identity that is only available to those who choose to renounce sex and marriage and children for the sake of the kingdom. And it's a name that Isaiah says is even better than son or daughter. It's a precious name. Is the life of committed single celibacy difficult? I imagine so. Is marriage difficult? Yes. Is staying in a marriage that isn't working difficult? Yes. Is raising children difficult? Yes. Both of these ways of life are gifts. Both of them come with their own unique burdens and trials, and both of them are honored by Jesus as a way to live your life faithfully in the kingdom of God. God has given us this high vision, this high calling to our life as sexual creatures that He has made. I want to say to you that even if you feel like you are really sure about what you believe about all these things and you know what the Bible says about all of them, I think most of us, all of us, have to admit how far we have fallen short of God's plan and purpose in this area in our lives. Yeah? 
already mentioned divorce earlier today, but we know that there are all sorts of ways that we fall short of this, and statistics around divorce and pornography and adultery, both inside as well as outside of the church. It's terrible. We have not honored God with our lives. We have wounded other people with our actions. We have been wounded by the actions of other people. We have experienced the pain of the bad stories that we've heard told to us about sex in our world. And the good news is that God has made a way for everyone, and that everyone includes you today. Everyone. Greek word for everyone is everyone. 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 To experience forgiveness and healing from their sin. One last passage to take you to, and then we'll finish today. First Corinthians chapter 6. The New Testament is clear about the reality and danger of sexual sin. Paul even says that it's the only sin that we commit that's a sin against our own body. There's something unique about it. And numerous times Paul will give this list of warnings about different kinds of sexual sin, and every single time he follows that up with a statement of the good news of the gospel. One example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, the gospel. And that is what some of you were. That you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I believe, as a church, we believe the Bible tells a true and a better story about sex and about desire and about what it means to be male and female than what is offered to us by the world. And next week, Lord willing, I want to talk about that story that the world is telling us and how the Bible offers a better story and a better vision. Because what I want to say and remind us of right now is that the story that the world is telling us is very compelling. We kind of think as, as Christians that the world is just telling a story of just kind of like sexual anarchists who want to do whatever they want out there. But they're telling a story about, about compassion and about tolerance and about community and about fulfilled desire. It's really compelling to people. What I want to suggest to you is that the church has not always told a very compelling story. And it's not because of the Bible's failure or because of the failure of the Christian story. I think it's because we have chosen to believe that our desires in life, just like the world, can be fulfilled in this life. And the Bible teaches us that the desires that we have in our life, sexual or otherwise, actually point us to a vertical, divine relationship that will be fulfilled forever and ever and ever. And we need to learn to better tell that story. 
for the 19-year-old woman who is curious about who Jesus is, who maybe even wants to follow Jesus, but is also attracted sexually to women, we need to have a better answer to her than the six or seven verses in the Bible that tell her that it's wrong. To a Christian couple who's struggling in their marriage, we need to give them a better vision for what God wants to do to them in sticking it out in this marriage than simply gritting their teeth for the sake of the kids. To a single man who is 35, not married, and committed to God-honoring celibacy, the church needs to offer him family relationships that meet his relational needs rather than pointing him to the single group hoping he finds somebody. The single parent needs support and care and volunteers on Friday night to watch their children. The person with a porn addiction needs a story better than rules and accountability partners and sheer willpower. The divorced person needs to know that grace is available to them. The widowed person needs to know that in the community that their needs are going to be seen and cared for. We need to tell a better story and, and to not pretend that we have the easy answers for complicated and difficult questions in people's lives. Marriage and the single life. Here's the good news we're going to end with today. Marriage and the single life, they're both temporary. They are both seasons. They are not eternal. They will both end someday. They are both temporary states that we live out faithfully now to Jesus as we wait for the eternal wedding supper of the Lamb that we will all join together and enjoy. This is the better story that our marriages and our, our single lives what it's pointing to. A divine relationship with our Creator, where we more and more image who He is to the world, whether as a single person or a married person, where we reflect who He is to the world in whatever way He has called us as we wait for a time where we will be joined together forever with Him.